Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part one of a two-part series on the Copper Scroll, part of the extraordinary cache of first-century documents first discovered in the caves at Qumran, popularly known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. A scholar at the Hebrew University, Eliezer Sukanik, he had heard words sort of floating around that some ancient scrolls were on the black market, but he was able to make a contact and really, I mean, Jerusalem was divided by barbed wire, and it was not like a time that you wanted to be crossing over to the other side, sort of on the eve of war. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, this is no time to be dealing with amateurs. You need to bring in the professionals. Paranormal Contractors is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. They utilize the latest scientific technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call them at this new number, 631 That's 631-552-5835. Email paranormalcontractors at gmail.com and tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome to your Friday. Friday, you know what that means. A visit from Christian D. Cadieux of Paranormal Contractors. And just a reminder, Christian will be joining me up at Occulticon 2019, September the 13th to the 15th, up in Holstein, Ontario, that's Gray County, at the Mythwood Events Campground, Occulticon 2019. For more information, go to occulticon.com, occulticon.com, or you can go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the live events and appearances page. Shelley Neese, author of The Copper Scroll Project, is standing by. She documents retired arson investigator Jim Barfield's fascinating journey to decode the most mysterious of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Copper Scroll Project tells the story of an Oklahoma arson investigator, Jim Barfield, who sets off on a decade-long quest to uncover Qumran's secrets, the lost treasures of the Jerusalem Temple, and show the world that the Dead Sea Scrolls were merely the tip of the archaeological iceberg. Through a series of breakthroughs and setbacks, Barfield's Copper Scroll Project became inadvertently tethered to Israel's modern battle for the Temple Mount. The Copper Scroll Project is the only remaining witness to a covert operation to rescue temple tithes and vessels before foreign invaders overran Jerusalem's city gates. Could secrets contained in the most enigmatic of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Copper Scroll, hold the keys to one of the greatest treasures in Israel's history? 
Shelley Nice is the vice president of the Jerusalem Connection International, a nonprofit Christian organization based out of Washington, D.C. Her mission is to inform, educate, and activate support for Israel and the Jewish people. As a freelance columnist for several publications, her articles have appeared in the Jerusalem Post, Arutz Shiva, Front Page Magazine, and more. She has been present for the most central events in the Copper Scroll Project over the last decade, including the initial excavations at Qumran in 2009. Shelley Nice, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Richard. The Copper Scroll Project, an ancient secret fuels the battle for the Temple Mount. Let's set the table. Take us to the caves in Qumran, explain where they are, and let's talk a little bit also about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. So the Copper Scroll is part of the Dead Sea Scroll Library. So it's one of the 900 manuscripts that make up the Dead Sea Scroll corpus. So, yeah, I'm not sure how much your listeners are aware of just the Dead Sea Scroll story, but mm-hmm. that is just a fascinating fascinating story in and of itself. There were about 11 Dead Sea Scroll caves. The very first Dead Sea Scroll cave was found by Bedouin shepherds that were, you know, marching around the caves of Qumran, mostly just looking for sparse vegetation for their for their goats or sheep. It depends on which which version of the story that you hear. And and a Bedouin named Muhammad the Wolf, that was his nickname, he threw a rock into a cave, heard shattering shattering pottery, went home that night and sort of dreamed of coming back the next day with his cousins to find treasures, and instead found these scrolls that, to him, I mean, he was illiterate in Arabic, much less ancient, much less Hebrew, and so really was disappointed to, to find something that he thought was pretty pretty worthless. Brought it back to the camp. There was a little bit of debate in the in the Bedouin community that he was a part of, and the the tribe that he was a part of, of whether or not to repurpose the leather from the scrolls, wow. which can you imagine? And um, and it took it took a few months before an uncle kind of comes onto the scene and says, "I think these are worth taking to Bethlehem on market day." I, I you know you kind of had a contact in the black market antiquities trade, brings them in, and it it was basically a cobbler who was also acting <laughs> acting had a side job of in the black market antiquities trade. His name was Kando. And so he kind of makes a deal that he'll he'll try and sell some of these. There was three scrolls in terms of for the first find, and he'll just sort of shop around and see if he can get anything for them. So for those very first three scrolls, the Bedouin went home the equivalent of about $60 wealthier once it was all said and done My and the word. deal had been done. My word. Right. And so... Such a crazy time to be alive during... And, and really for the next... You know, it's just for the next decade, it's going to be a mad hunt between the Bedouins racing against the archaeologists in terms of who's going to find the next caves and who's going to find the where the rest of the library is hidden throughout the Dead Sea. Usually it's going to be the Bedouin who win. That, at least in the terms of Cave 4, each cave in the Dead Sea Scroll, you know, they give each cave a number in terms of the order that it was found. For a long time, it's always been assumed to have been 11 caves. Just here, I'm sure you remember in the news that it was about two years ago that they found it was actually, there was a 12th cave that just the archaeologist had never found. And um, 
it was in the case of Cave 3 that it was actually a team from uh, sponsored by the Jordan Antiquities Authority that they had happened upon Cave 3 and they were the ones that it was probably about 40 scrolls that were inside Cave 3 the problem was is that the the roof of the cave had collapsed in antiquity co- crushing all of the jars you know there there's like a very particular kind of dead sea scroll jar that most people are familiar with from seeing it's really um, it has a bowl-shaped lid, and it's it's a cylinder jar. And so those had been crushed, leaving the scrolls in them pretty much exposed to the elements for 2,000 years. It took them about 10 days to excavate Cave 3. And, and pretty disappointingly, for once, at one time had several, several different um, scrolls, really had nothing left except for fragments of scrolls and rat's nest throughout the cave. But it was on the last day in the last few hours that they see this this wall that almost looks like a false wall to a lesser side cave inside. You know, always we talk about caves with the Dead Sea Scroll caves. It's really a lot more almost like cave complexes, you know, little side caves kind of within these nest of caves, multi-room caves, if you will. And so it was they chipped through it, and what they find is a man-made shelf, and resting on that man-made shelf are two copper rolls, and that's the copper scroll. Right. Now, just before we get to the copper scrolls, mm-hmm. let's just drill down a little bit on the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, just because it's for an sure. important um, context here. And for those you know not familiar, let's assume that people really, they've heard the term Dead Sea Scrolls, and they know that they... You know, they they correspond with the biblical text and so forth, but they don't really know too much about them. So let's talk about what what the Dead Sea Scrolls contain and why they're important. Absolutely. Well, so uh, very few people would disagree with the Dead Sea Scrolls probably being the most important archaeological find in the 20th century, as much because it's the because of how it's associated with the Bible and because of the emotional attachment that we that we feel towards the Bible versus maybe King Tut's tomb or something. Um, and so just that alone, it would be amazing to find any peek into any ancient people group and, and their most sacred sacred text, except for that in this case, those are still the sacred texts that we embrace today or, you know, as Christians or Jews. And so... So that's why, I mean, just immediately the Dead Sea Scrolls, when the first ones sort of came to the attention of the world, that they that they immediately just garnered attention and, and conspiracy. And um, it and it, it's a slow flood. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, the very first ones, when I was talking about Muhammad the Wolf and the Bedouin in the very first cave that was found, it was actually, it took, you know, it... At first, so it was about seven scrolls in that first cave, but what was most important was getting Jewish scholar eyes on these scrolls, because until someone could see the scrolls and know what they were reading or knew what they were seeing, I mean, they they were sort of useless other than just some sort of ancient un- unidentified text. And so, but this was during 1947, so Israel wasn't a state yet. In fact, the British were pulling out and and war, you know, war drums were beating. And it was um, a scholar at the Hebrew University, Eliezer Sukanik, and he had heard words sort of floating around that some ancient scrolls were on the black market. 
But he was able to make a contact and really, I mean, Jerusalem was divided by barbed wire and and it was not like a time that you wanted to be crossing over to the other side, sort of on the eve of war. But he had an opportunity to see one of the first of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so he met his friend, he was an Armenian, and, and he was sort of like the one, um, the middleman in the deal. And they literally met on, on opposite sides of barbed wire in Jerusalem at a store in Bethlehem. And it was only in that moment that it was Eliezer Sukanik, a Jewish scholar, who sees a scroll fragment and realizes he immediately recognizes the Hebrew as similar to first century ossuaries, which are, you know, kind of bone coffins that were common to Jerusalem in the first century. And he had seen inscriptions on those. And so he knew he knew that text and he could date it immediately even through barbed wire that he was looking at something that was from the first century so once he was able to get his hands on all three of those first scrolls and he goes back to his apartment and he's he's unrolling the scrolls and laying eyes on it the first time it's just such a amazing sort of chill bump story because he he realizes at that moment he writes in his diary that night that he is laying eyes. He says that something like, I suddenly had the feeling that I was privileged by destiny to gaze upon a Hebrew scroll, which had not been read for more than 2,000 years. So that particular text that he had first seen was called Thanksgiving scroll. And, and really, it was a text that had been lost to us for 2,000 years. It's not even like it had made the biblical canon. or it. And so, right, right. Um, and so he realizes that right away. He also had a copy of Isaiah, um, he had a commentary on, um, it was a war scroll, or it's called the Royal War Scroll. So really, I mean, these were texts that, not just biblical texts, which would have been important by itself, but texts that no one had seen for 2,000 years. And right when he's doing that, I mean, as if you could just write this script, um, the United Nations chooses to it has their general assembly and they announce over the radio that they're voting in favor of the establishment of a Jewish state. How prophetic! So How prophetic! I know he's seeing these scrolls. He's laying eyes on them for the first time, and celebrations are breaking out in the streets around his house. Now, what is the significance? Okay, so so he we we have these scrolls and in Hebrew, some are in Aramaic, uh, and you know we have. Uh, the uh, we have passages from Isaiah, we have Psalms, we have other commentaries, the War Scroll, the the, the Thanksgiving Scroll. Uh, but why why are these so significant? What what do they mean to us as as Christians as Jews? Right. So right out the gate, the most obvious thing is that we suddenly found ourselves like biblical scholarship was flipped on its head. Um, because the Dead Sea Scrolls predate the oldest known copies of the Hebrew Bible before that point by a thousand years. So before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, you know, the oldest Hebrew Bible that we had was about from um, 1000 CE. So suddenly, suddenly we find ourselves with Hebrew text. Every book of the Hebrew Bible is represented in the Dead Sea Scroll Library, apart from Esther, which is probably because the name of Yahweh isn't directly um, written in Esther. 
And so there's a possibility that what the Dead Sea Scrolls actually were were some sort of of Geniza, a sort of storage place for for anything that had God's holy name on it. But besides that, it's like what I see in the Dead Sea Scrolls is just this spiritual time capsule that we get to peer into first century Israel. And to me, just on a scholarly level, there's no period that's more important if you really want to deep dive into in terms of for Christians and Jews. I mean, this is the cradle that Christianity was birthed in. Um, This is sort of any messianic hope or expectation that was spreading among Israel. It was all in the temperature and the season of this in first century Israel. And that also applies to Judaism. I mean, really rabbinic Judaism as we know it today was also founded during this period. So for, for Jewish Christian history, but also just the world history, because the Hebrew Bible has affected the world all over it, it really silenced the skeptics in terms of the Bible's authenticity because the biblical scrolls matched the traditional text that we had had. Right, and because so many people argue, oh, the Bible has way. been, the Bible has been, you know, mistranslated altered. and altered every, every generation when it's copied over and over and over, but not so. The Bible remains this cohesive, uh, consistent document throughout time. Totally, and so protected, and so there was suspicion that it had always been a very protected document. I mean, we could see that from the way Jewish scribes would so carefully um, copy text, and and you know were so meticulous about that process. But it was th- this particular time in the 1950s. I mean, really, biblical criticism is getting a lot of momentum, and that's what I love about archaeology, Richard, because. It's something, it's it's a science that can immediately flip things on its head, you know. So scholarship and biblical criticism is, is starting to gain momentum after decades of really just kind of closely analyzing the Bible and trying to find any particular parts of Isaiah that may have been altered over the years. And then suddenly, within a day, we find ourselves, you know, with this new text that's a thousand years older than anyone had could get their hands on, and then and it just silences the critics, and it flips scholarship on its head. And really, I can't think of anything else besides archaeology that has quite that same immediate impact. True, true. Um, my wife was trained as an archaeologist. I always say that's why she married me, because she likes digging up old things. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but, or she finds old things interesting. There you go. That's, let's go with that one. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, but it, it, I can't think of an example where where an archaeological discovery has disproven the Bible, uh, b- because there was a time when when the existence of Pontius Pilate was disputed. Oh, that's just a fictional character, and then they found archaeological evidence. And I think the same for Caiaphas. Absolutely, and a uh, King David. I mean, yes. really, there was a lot of debate, and still is about well. There was a lot about debate about whether or not King David existed, and then we find the inscription in Tel Dan that refers to the House of David. Not only does it refer to the House of David, it also kind of hints at a Bible story that we were already familiar with and other other kind of international players in that. And so then the debate gets altered of, well, okay, well, King David existed, 
but maybe he wasn't as wealthy and, and maybe his kingdom wasn't as powerful as the Bible presents. But, you know, now we're digging up the the Palace of David right outside of the old city of Jerusalem and only, you know, re- confirming all of this that we had always suspected of, oh, no, he's quite powerful and quite wealthy and had united the kingdom under his leadership. And so, no, absolutely not just from a textual perspective, which is what the Dead Sea Scrolls offer, but also just from the Bible stories, you know, that we're able to dig up Bible stories, especially with the rebirth of Israel and all of that being at the fingertips of of Jewish scholars and people that know what they're doing and know what they're looking for. Um, And I think those chapters are still being revealed. I mean, what's even happened in the last 18 years is enormous. The Qumran Caves, the Qumran um, vicinity, the the Jewish settlement that existed there. Give me a give me an era. Are we talking about the 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 Hellenistic period? Or are we talking about um, uh, first Jewish Roman War period? When? Right. So there's the, there's one cistern in Qumran that dates back to to really the you know the the period of the prophets. I mean, dates back to to early. Bronze Age, so it would say, let's say about 700 BCE. So we know that at least there was some kind of community there with some sort of at least engineering ingenuity that they were able to to build a water source there and to start a community there. Um, and, and that applies to about three or four parts of Qumran that we know are old. Um, the rest of Qumran and the ruins that we can sort of see today do date to the Roman period, so date between the first century BC and then up until the first Jewish revolt, and so when the time of the destruction of the second temple, and and then you know then we'll not see any activity in Qumran for for two thousand years really, um, and so and we see there's there's Roman warheads that were found at Qumran, so we know that there was a battle that took place there. We can tell a lot of things about its its last phase of occupation. What we can't tell is anything about it's why it was initially set up there. There are there is some theory that perhaps it was connected to the school of the prophets in the Bible and to Samuel um, and that idea. You know, David at one point hid in En Gedi and, and, and kind of crosses over a school of the prophets. So so there's some thinking of, like, possibly this could have been connected to the school of the prophets, especially since whatever Qumran was, it was treated as holy and sacred in its own respect. Not on the level of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem throughout history will go through periods of corruption that the priesthood well, you know, we're just getting finished with Hanukkah. To, um, and so we know that the Maccabees, the people that were strong and courageous, will grow corrupt because, you know, the joke, when you re- mix religion and politics, you get politics. So that will happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that will happen to the Maccabeans. And and so the, the Essenes, which Josephus tells us there was three groups that lived during this time in the first century Jerusalem period, and it was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Most people think, most scholarship sort of points towards the Essenes being the ones who lived at Qumran. This was a pious, a, pi- a pious Jewish sect uh, that, well, tell us, let's, this is a good top, time to talk a little uh-huh. bit about the Essenes. Um they wore the hair long, correct? So when I think about the Essenes, I mean, it's helpful when you're a Christian because 
you know, these are to me of like, okay, so these were kind of a monks, you know, they had a monastic community there in Qumran. They wore white linen robes from what we know. And we know a ton about them because we have all of their text. We have, I mean, assuming that the Essenes were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls that were the scribes for the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have their sectarian text, the texts that tell us about their daily lives, which is a really rare thing to have. Not often can you pair ruins with texts that match how the people lived on a day-to-day basis in that time period. So it's like a freeze frame. Um, They were uber religious. We also have lots of details about the way they lived from Josephus. I mean, not to get too deep in the weeds here, but I mean, they they didn't poop on Sabbath. Like, that's how (laughs) religious they were. (laughs) Um, So these were people very in control. They... um, they they mikvahed, you know, so they participated in Jewish ritual baths way more than the average Jerusalemite. There's, you know, just the um, amount of mikvahs, the amount of ritual baths that are in Qumran are on par with what would have been, you know, just within the holy precincts in Jerusalem. And so whatever they were doing there, they were they were pursuing a level of holiness that was on par with the priesthood in Jerusalem. Most people think that they didn't marry. There's burial grounds outside of Qumran. Most of those inhabitants are men, although there are a few women. So, you know, we don't really know what that tells us. Like, were they just women that were en route to Jericho and they they died somewhere along the route and they got buried there? But it's mostly men. um, And, you know, they, they believed they were living in the end times because of their other parts of their scrolls between the, that there was this, the war scroll, it talks about the sons of light and the sons of darkness facing off against each other. And so just like Jeremiah talks about, if you if you believe you're living in the end times, if you believe that, you know, you're not as um, pressed to marry, <laughs> you're right. not, that, that's not your first priority. Well, some, some have um, speculated, uh, Shelley, some mm-hmm. have speculated that, that Jesus was an Essene. What are your thoughts Absolutely. on that? Absolutely. Well, Jesus is harder, I mean, because he did spend so much time in, in, in Jerusalem and the Galilee, and we don't know, there is indication that Qumran was not the only Essene community, that there was also other Essene communities in different parts of Israel. And so if he, if Jesus was Essene, I think he was not part of the Qumran community. However, John the Baptist, I mean, that's that that is even a better match to me in terms of this, you know, both of them being rabbinic in their teaching styles, but not married is unusual for if they had been Pharisee or Sadducee, you, you know, you wouldn't really see that. So just the fact that they were choosing um, celibacy and choosing to not be part of, of that part of religious Jewish life does seem more Essene, but also just, John the Baptist, you know, the way he talks about himself, the way that we envisualize just him making the way and and preparing the way for the Messiah, preparing the way for the coming Lord, that is a super Essene way of speaking. That was what they thought that they were doing, you know, so calling people to repentance, calling people for just to prepare their hearts and minds. Um, Also, John the Baptist walking around, you know, baptizing people. I mean, from what we can see from the architecture of of Qumran and also what the Essenes write in their scrolls, obviously purity and, and, you know, baptism is a form of the 
the ritual baths. So all of that to me, I mean, John the Baptist is a hard one for me to shake. He seems right. super essing. And, and listen, is there... seems above it all still. But. Is, is there a better John the Baptist than Michael York? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> we can right. have him play that part. <laughs> More of my conversation with Shelley Neese on the Copper Scroll Project when Conspiracy Unlimited continues. Let's get Christian DeCadure from Paranormal Contractors in here. Hey, Christian, how are you? Hey, Richard. It's always good to be on your show. Happy Friday. Now, you and I have talked about how difficult it is for you to, to keep employees because they sign up, it sounds exciting, but they really don't know what they're in for. You've lost a number of employees who have been attacked by entities. Let's talk about that. We do have a high turnover of individuals and technicians and whatnot. And it is just because of that. But there have been many times where our technicians have encountered different things. Some technicians have quit on the job because they've been pushed by an invisible assailant. And then there are other ones who have not necessarily quit, but uh, are very upset because they are coming home and they have scratches on different parts of their bodies. Most recently, I had two technicians that scratches on their lower extremity, on their legs. But here's the craziest thing, Richard, is that those scratches were underneath the clothing, meaning they were wearing clothing at the time. So the scratches somehow were on their legs, on the back of their calves, almost uh, symmetrical for the two technicians. Uh, Not exactly, but almost symmetrical. Now, none of them had any irritation, no allergies to absolutely anything. But they were, in fact, scratched. How that happened, I, I, I'd like to tell you, but, but I don't know. But uh, it's certainly a common occurrence uh, when we are working in, uh, in different environments. You know, our technicians receiving scratches or, or being pushed or, for whatever reason, uh, feeling completely disoriented or discombobulated as a result of paranormal entities making themselves known and more than likely not wanting us in that environment. And did they feel like they were being scratched at the time or did they not realize anything until they got home? I asked them that question and they said to me that they felt the pain, but it wasn't anything extraordinary that would cause them to to go to the washroom and pull up their their leggings. But uh, that night when they went home, they showered, they certainly saw scratch marks on uh, on their back calves. And uh, it, it definitely appeared to be nail marks Well, if you want to be a real ghost hunter and work for paranormal contractors, I got to tell you, it's not for the squeamish. It's not for the faint of heart. Christian, leave us with a 1-866 number for people who have unwanted paranormal activity. Okay, so we can be contacted at 1-866-724-0800 or paranormalcontractors at gmail.com or our YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors. Christian DeCadieu, the real John Constantine. Paranormal Contractors is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. As you know, I'm in Greece for August and part of September. And of course, I packed my swimsuit, sunglasses, and plenty of sunscreen, but I also packed my Formula 13 Herbal Power Tea. 
And before I head off to the beach, I enjoy a cold, refreshing glass of the pomegranate herbal tea. I've been drinking this remarkable, organic, non-GMO, caffeine-free herbal tea for months. And I've got more energy and stamina than I had in my 30s. Check it out at getthetea.com. They have a great summer sale happening right now. Buy three, get one free. Buy three and get one free. Plus, you receive 60 capsules of Heart Love, which promotes cardiovascular support. And as always, when you make your first purchase of any of the amazing products at getthetea.com, use the code UNLIMITED and your first order ships for free. Formula 13 Herbal Power Teas are not available in any store. You have to get the tea from getthetea.com. If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Shelley Nice is here, author of The Copper Scroll Project. We were discussing also the Essenes. Now, they were the, they were the scribes. They were the, the, the individuals that, that this priestly sect that that uh, copied these scrolls but where did they copy them from was this up until uh, uh, up until now was this sort of an oral tradition or where did they copy them from right so and this is another thing about archaeology i mean before the jewish community was a very literate community and so how early their literacy began is a date that we move further and further back in history the more that we learn and the more that we find but pretty much the assumption is that by the time of the Babylonian exile that that the scriptures were already had been written or were being written um, and that what had been oral was now written down. So by the time that they were living in Qumran and assuming, you know, that they were occupying that space, what everything indicates during the Second Temple period, during the period of corruption, it's Herod's temple, you know, the priesthood is, is corrupt at this point, and so they've re- withdrawn. They've put themselves in, electively, probably, in exile in Qumran to live out what they refer to as the way. Now, what's interesting is that they never refer, none of the Dead Sea Scrolls refer to themselves as Essene. So we are assuming that it's Essenes writing these scrolls because we have other ancient historians who Ptolemy and Josephus, who who kind of geographically put a group of Essenes around Angeti, around the Dead Sea. And then we, you know, so we kind of are putting all these clues together. But I do feel like I should note to the listeners that it never says Essenes wrote this. You know, so in 900 scrolls, we never have the word Essene, that they refer to themselves that way. They refer to themselves as the way or the Yachad, kind of the community. Um, so that leaves the, the mind to wonder in a lot of ways. They also never, they'll talk about historical figures in the scrolls. And I find this just really interesting, um, because they won't name them outright. Everyone has a pseudonym. So they'll say the wicked priest or the righteous one, um, for their leader. Um, they'll refer to the lion of wrath in terms of, it seems like the person who kind of kicked them out of Jerusalem and, and they endured a period of persecution under. So really for historians, this just gives a wide field of trying to pinpoint who are these 
figures in history that match these clues and the scrolls, which is really pretty amazing. And some people even think almost, you know, maybe at different points in history, there's different people that filled those pseudonyms. Like you can look at the book of Jeremiah and you can find that, you know, Jeremiah could be the righteous one. The, the, there was, um, they have one person called the man of lies and um, and the wicked priest and, and the line of... So you could almost even in the biblical books find figures that would have fit um, fit those sort of like cast calls for those different people. Right, but, right. But it probably, you know, still, no matter how we kind of go about it and, and, and suffer through the, the fact that they didn't make it easy for us to sort of diagnose or determine which time period that they lived in and who they were, it does seem to be, to be Essenes. Now, the, the, um, we have the, you know, the, the Torah, uh, mm-hmm. the Old Testament in there, the, but is there anything in the, the commentaries uh, that um, might allude to the Messiah. Right. Well, so there are there's there's a there's a lot of interesting things about just messianism in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, the pulse of them in terms of the commentaries um, is is looking into what's happening in their day and reading kind of prophetic events into what they see playing out before them in their day. Um, and so to me, just it's, it's almost more important just this messianic pulse that you can feel in the commentaries, in the sectarian text, kind of, you know, just all of the scrolls. 30% of the Dead Sea Scrolls are just straight biblical books as we know yes. them today. 30% are sectarian texts telling us about how they lived, and 30% are commentaries um, or just extra biblical books like the Book of Enoch and those other books that didn't make it into our canon but were very popular at the time. And so I can't say that any specific messianic figure bleeds through. They do have a teacher of righteousness, but more than anything, it's just you can feel the longing and the messianic hope that they've identified with as a community. Uh, and is is it possible that that some of those scrolls or all of those scrolls were spirited away to the the caves, uh, be, in order to preserve them from the destruction of the Second Temple in AD seventy by the Romans? Right. Well, so there's a hot debate. You're kind of you're walking on hot coals now. So there there's a very hot debate that at Dead Sea Scrolls scholars have almost come into physical blows at Dead Sea Scroll conferences (laughs) about, because there's two camps in Dead Sea Scroll scholarship. There's the Essene camp, and there's the anti-Essene camp. (laughs) The Essene camp is the one who, you know, have mostly created the narrative the most early that Essenes wrote the scrolls, and 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 that's the majority and and the most kind of, like, highly respected scholars. The other camp is the anti-Essene camp, and they claim that they've been silenced by, (laughs) by the others. Um, and so at these these conferences, they really, it's a real point of contention, because yes, that does make sense. How did one community have so many scribes? It doesn't, you know, that would be 20 times more scribes than we knew to even exist in Jerusalem at the time, and all of a sudden that they're all living in Kerman. So one idea is that Actually, what those 11 caves were housing around Qumran were 
from the Jerusalem Library. So only Jerusalem could have had 900-plus biblical scrolls. And, and it was whenever the Sadducees, or the, when Sadducean priest or whomever, when they were on the run and the Romans were destroying the temple and all of this, you know, none of this happens just suddenly overnight. Like, there's an understanding of what's coming. There's time to possibly get some of their precious scrolls out of Jerusalem. And they don't think that they're going to be exiled for 2,000 years. They could possibly have thought, we're going to deposit these in these caves, and we're going to hop across to Egypt, or, you know, we're fleeing, um, and, and we'll come back and retrieve these sometime soon. We were talking before about the possibility that the the scrolls were deposited there by uh, priests who were, were fleeing uh, as the Romans were destroying the Second Temple in AD 70. And as you say, this is a hotly contested idea. Um, it's almost, well, I think the, 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 the Shakespearean authorship question pales by comparison. Uh, <laughs> so, At least the stakes are higher. Yes, know. absolutely. Um, but... I guess the question is why? Why are the stakes higher? Why is why is it such a big deal to think that perhaps the the uh, this is part of the Jerusalem Library and the scrolls were moved to the Qumran caves? Uh, otherwise, you know, as you say, there, there surely there couldn't have been that many scribes in this little Jewish settlement in Qumran. So what's the big deal? Right. What's the big deal? It's like in one area you think well that it does seem like an awfully high number of scribes in a small sectarian settlement. However, we did find more inkwells in this one particular settlement, or archaeologists that were able to uncover more inkwells in this one particular settlement than they've found, you know, in entire cities. Um, There are desks and sort of these benches that are, really, we don't see them in any other first century settlements or ruins, and they look like scribes tables. Um, And even just we know from Judaism in terms of text is what Jews have offered to the world, right? You know, so the Chinese have built a wall, the Greeks have built the Parthenon, the Egyptians have built the pyramids, and and so what the Jewish ancient world has offered is, is their words. And so just how holy and how reverent they treat this process. So it would kind of also make sense that um that they would treat this as, as that they would segregate themselves, that they would almost have like how they've had in the past the School of Prophets, that there might be this settlement of scribes. So all of it kind of does match what we know in terms of the way that Judaism worked then, the way it works now. Um, I guess mostly, though, this is scholarly, right? So scholars make a living off of, Freud calls it like the narcissism of small differences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So you and I look at this debate, and I'm still kind of look at this debate with some just you know annoyance that um, that they would just blow up at the option. Because to me, either way, either way it falls. What's most important is the time period that they were produced and the fact that they verify the authenticity of the Bible. But I think it would change the way that we think about Qumran, because it would reduce the importance of Qumran as an actual site. And so, and and you would have to explain, well, if Qumran, if, if the Dead Sea Scroll Caves were actually just deposits from the Jerusalem Library, then what was Qumran? Why did they have so many ritual baths? Why did they seem to at least, you know, have a lot of scribal activity? 
And that's that's where we really get tripped up in terms of the, the theories that have been offered of what Qumran might have been have all been um, have all been debunked, sort of one by one. There was an idea at a time that it maybe was a, a almost like a like a desert home for a wealthy Jerusalem family, so that it would have been some sort of villa, and they just based that the archaeologists who came up with that theory, they there were a couple, the Doncels and Belgian scholars, and they really didn't have much experience excavating inside of Israel. So I think that they were surprised by that it was really they didn't understand how um, the mosaics and and the pottery and sort of the wealth that you would see in other first century villas had it been a villa. And really, Qumran is very stark. You know, there's no mosaics. There's no decoration. There's no um, real sign that this was meant to be anything than for an austere community. Um, So that, that theory got kind of thrown away. There was another theory that it was a fortress, that it was a Judean military fortress. If so, because it does have a watchtower in it, and it seems like the watchtower is kind of pointing towards a strategic location on a major transit route. But it's built at the bottom of an overhanging cliff. It seems a really vulnerable location right. <laughs> if, if Qumran was meant to be now, you know, part of some sort of military fortress. The actual caves, are they in Jordanian territory or are they in the West Bank? Where are they? Right. So th- this is another hot-button issue. So it's Area C, which according to, not that the Oslo Accords are still, still really relevant, but let's pretend that they are. Area Israel is divided into area A, B, and C, and area C basically means that should a Palestinian state or should the peace process go forward tomorrow, that this could fall potentially in a future Palestinian state. It was under Jordanian authority until 1967, right. um, and then it became part of Israel. So, so really, Qumran was not, you know, was not an, on the on any Israeli tourist agendas, um, and wasn't part of the state of Israel until 1967. And um, and that's when really too there was just a lot of renovation and um, a lot of things that the Israelis did. Right, and the, the Oslo Accord. This was the the, the peace accord uh, between. Um, well, Bill Clinton sort of brokered this with uh, Itzhak Rabin. And, uh, and Shimon yeah, Perez. Shim, sorry, Shimon Perez and uh, Yasser Arafat, uh, in which it, it, it was essentially a, 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 the two-state solution, but then was rejected by the Palestinians, if I'm remembering correctly. Absolutely, and so sometimes still, you know, you will people will get fussy if Israel doesn't adhere to what was um, declared areas A, B, and C in terms of, like, as if they've they've changed the tables a little bit for future negotiations. But those tables have been changed by, by the other side as well. Well, yes. But, I mean, the, the Palestinians have been offered, or, well, I shouldn't say the Palestinians, but I should say the Arabs have been promised a two-state solution going back to, what, the 1930s? Uh, five times, right. I think, by my count. And the, the offers only got better and harder to turn down, and you know, and yes, that we could get more judgy for for each one that they turned down. But so, but it really, in terms of for archaeology, though, by international standards, Qumran is disputed territory, 
And so anything that comes out of the ground at Qumran is a disputed artifact. Right. And I'm not saying that I agree with this. This is just according to international law. Sure. So I don't think many people realize this, but Israel Antiquities Authority is in full control, or they, they operate in Israel proper, you know, the parts of Israel that would be in the future, or, you know, the permanent Israeli state no matter what. Right. But Israel actually has a separate wing, a separate archaeological association for Judea Samaria. So for what would be considered the West Bank or any disputed parts of Israel that's under a different that operates under a different rubric. What right. really is 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 more military. The the head person, the head civil administrator for that is it's technically a military role. So I always think just in my own imagination, that part of the Indiana Jones story, you know, where the Ark of the Covenant goes in a warehouse in a box. Um, <laughs> that part is actually spot on. So if something technically is found in these areas, they do go in a military warehouse. They can sit on the desk of the scholar who, or the archaeologist who found them. They can take their time publishing about them. But because they're a disputed artifact, they're technically supposed to go into a military warehouse. Fascinating. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And the Temple Mount, uh, who has jurisdiction there, archaeologically speaking? So no one is allowed to dig at the Temple Mount. It, whenever you hear of anything found inside of Jerusalem, it's always outside the city walls. Like in the, there's a city of David that's kind of, or the Ophel that's sort of down from the old city walls in Jerusalem. But technically, no one is allowed to excavate on the Temple Mount. I mean, that's how contentious the real estate is there. There was the one example of the Muslim law was trying to, um, that they cleared out just tons and tons of debris from what we would call Solomon's stables just underneath the Temple Mount, and they just dumped it. And it was sort of an archaeological nightmare, but now Israel's turned to that nightmare into a blessing. And so now that's one of the the longest-running sifting projects. So they're literally sifting through, you know, what the Arabs sort of, like, took out from underneath the Temple Mount just in terms of debris and trash, and they dumped it. But it turned out to be filled with um, historical treasures. Well, and anything that confirms the the existence of the temple at that location obviously would would cause, you know, huge huge problems between uh, Arabs and Jews because the uh, the Palestinian uh, Palestinians don't the, the authority at least does not believe that the temple existed there. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Which is a new phenomenon. I mean, up until recently, I mean, up until really Arafat articulating that there's. We have plenty of text from Islamic pamphlets from, you know, from tourism in that time period, from old documents, from Muslims calling it Solomon's City. Um, and so this is really actually a new piece of the Palestinian narrative, starting with Arafat, the temple denial. But yes, that is the current sort of myth that's taken over the Palestinian story, is that there was never a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. No historian, no scholar, no archaeologist would agree with that, even even if they were atheist. But um, there's just too much historical references to the temple. There's, I mean, there's still the retaining wall standing there. Yes, the yes. Temple Mount itself is the one that Herod renovated. So it's nonsense, but it's important. You can never discount something just because it's nonsense. I mean, it's propaganda, and propaganda has to be fought. 
All right. So I think we've sufficiently set the table in terms of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and now it's time to move on to your book. There you go. The Copper Scroll Project. Um, and we, we mentioned, or you mentioned off the top, that uh, in addition to these um, sort of leather scrolls, we had these two copper scrolls that were also found uh, in the back. Uh, was it behind kind of a false wall? Mm-hmm. So let's go into a right. little, just be, as we come up to the top of the hour here, let's just spend a few minutes and talk to me about the condition of these copper scrolls and, and uh, then what they, what they contained. Right. So obviously the copper scroll is my favorite of all of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the most enigmatic. I mean, really, those three categories that we talked about earlier in terms of all of the Dead Sea Scrolls either being biblical or commentaries or um, sectarian texts, the copper scroll doesn't fit any of that. The copper scroll, first of all, it's on metal, so it's not papyrus or leather. There's no other ancient metal document ever been found in Israel. Really, in the ancient world, we have one other metal document that was found in, in Egypt in Ramses II's funerary. And so this is really an unusual unusual scroll, just even materially. And when they first found the copper scroll, it was it was snapped in two. So it was, really, we say copper scroll was technically two scrolls, but it had snapped in two during antiquity whenever they were rolling it and hiding it in this cave. What were the dimensions? And about a foot wide and over six feet long. My word. All right. Once you rolled it out. All right, that concludes part one of my two-part series on the Copper Scroll Project. Now, before I say goodnight to the moon over Messenia, I'll be back in just a moment to fill you in on what's coming up next. Hey, if you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, you're going to want to check out my brand new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Shop. There's an exclusive line of men and women's classic tees with a very cool design. It's a limited run and a limited time offer, a special price of $21 US. That lasts only until August the 19th. There are also mugs, tote bags, and stickers. Go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and find the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. The Strange Planet Shop at strangeplanet.ca. It's a strange planet. Wear the shirt. Take the journey. Be sure to be listening Monday for part two of my two-part series on the amazing Copper Scroll Project. Even when you just touch the edge, it would crumble because it did what copper does, and it oxidized, and it was green, and it was brittle. In a way, copper was the perfect sort of material choice for these scribes 2,000 years ago because copper has a way of preserving itself, you know, with the green patina, just like the Statue of Liberty. So if they could just unroll it, they knew that they would be able to see the text as it was written 2,000 years ago. But the problem was was figuring out how to do that and, and finding also someone who had the gut to take that chance. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Kelly Nikta. 
new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.